It has been 41 days since Israel's war on Gaza began. Deal or no deal, Israel continues its relentless attack on civilians and infrastructure. From the sky, Israeli warplanes lay waste to homes, schools and hospitals. And on the ground, Israeli forces are everywhere on the streets, firing in all directions. The death toll rises by the hour. Each day, the stories coming from the Gaza Strip reveal a new horror. On Wednesday, a deal to pause the fighting and to allow for the exchange of hostages was announced. Brokered by Qatar and the US, it was hailed as a diplomatic breakthrough, but it does not amount to a full ceasefire. US President Biden spoke with reporters on Tuesday, November 21st. We've been working on this intensively for weeks, as you all know. I've spoken recently about it with both the Prime Minister Netanyahu and the uh, Amir Qatar. My team has been in the region shuttling, shuttling uh, between capitals. We, uh, we're now very close, very close. Uh, we could bring uh, some of these hostages home very soon. But I don't want to get into the, into the details of things. Initially, the West seemed united on backing Israel. No ifs, no buts. But as Israel's campaign continues to exceed all bounds of proportionality, some countries stepped back from their full support of Israel. Only the US administration has publicly stayed the course, firm by Israel's side. This week, what is the US policy regarding Israel and Gaza? How has it changed? And can it maintain its current level of support. My name is Hugo Goodrich, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. As of Tuesday, November 21st, the death toll in Gaza was reported to be at least 14,100 and 28. Around 5,800 of those killed are children. A further 6,800 are missing under rubble. At least 33,000 people have been wounded and 1.5 million forced from their homes. Even for those tasked with the job of keeping track of the violence, it's difficult to keep up. Each day brings a new catastrophe. While every innocent life lost represents a family torn apart, some horrors have stood out from others. Regular listeners might recall the explosion at the Al-Ahli Hospital in Gaza City on October 17th. At the time, it was unclear who was responsible. Even today, the full facts of the case remain unknown. Such battlefield ambiguity is not the case with the Al-Shifa hospital. Israel claimed that the hospital, also in Gaza City, no longer operational due to shortages of fuel, medical supplies and medicines, was a quote-unquote Hamas command and control centre. Subsequently, the Israeli army laid siege to the hospital, reportedly trapping inside 50,000 people. 
as the hospital director told Al Jazeera that, quote, patients are dying by the minute, victims and the wounded are also dying, even babies in incubators, end quote. The Israeli military told news outlet Haaretz that the medical facility was now considered to be a military zone. Footage from inside the hospital showed doctors performing surgeries and medical procedures, often without anaesthetic, by the light of their mobile phones. As Israeli forces surrounded the hospital, and with the morgues full and starved of power, staff were forced to bury the dead in a mass grave in the health facility's yard. Abu Mohammed al-Sarafiti, a doctor inside, decried the nightmarish situation. Our resources in the hospital decrease by the minute and no one else is here to help. We hold the United Nations and the whole world responsible for doing nothing for those patients and the Palestinians. We have children here, children are suffering and there is no one to help. Israel had ordered the evacuation of the hospital. While many were able to leave, this forced evacuation was performed at the barrel of a gun, and not before dozens died as a result of their injuries and sickness. Included among the dead were three premature babies who were being incubated at the hospital and died due to lack of power. It was reported by people working with Doctors Without Borders that even as people fled from the hospital, Israeli soldiers opened fire. To justify their attack on the hospital, Israel claimed that it was being used as a command center by Hamas. Once inside, they recorded a number of videos to support their claims. Some claims have been proven to be misleading, and some are fairly spurious None of the claims have been independently verified. And nothing produced by the Israeli military has shown that the hospital was the command and control centre they claimed it to be. The Al-Shifa hospital has not been the only hospital to be targeted. This is audio from footage captured at the Indonesian hospital, where people were also seeking shelter. This was from the Al-Awda hospital. The Al-Rantisi hospital was not spared the onslaught either. Schools have also come under intense fire. On November 18th, at least 80 people were killed when an Israeli airstrike hit the Al-Fakura school in Jablia, a UN school that was being used as shelter. Both the number of people who have been killed and the pace at which people are being killed is staggering. For those that survive, they're often left with nothing. As the death toll rises, so does the number of people suffering through an unprecedented humanitarian crisis, even for Gaza. Over the past month or so, so up until uh, 22nd of uh, November, around 1,500 truckloads of humanitarian supplies 
went into Gaza through the Egyptian border. This is Christian Benedict, the crisis response manager for Amnesty International UK. Now that compares to a monthly average of around 10,000 truckloads of humanitarian and commercial commodities uh, that were going into Gaza before the 7th of October. But let's remember as well, before this latest uh, escalation, there was already a humanitarian crisis that civilians were suffering under in Gaza. So it was not enough before the 7th of October. It's even less so now. So it is a catastrophe, a humanitarian catastrophe. Every basic need is in short supply currently. Prior to the conflict, there was, on average, 88 litres of water per person per day to be used for all cooking, cleaning and hydration. This was short of the 100 litres per person per day that the World Health Organization say is the minimum needed for basic survival. Today, Palestinians in Gaza can secure, on average, just 3 litres of water per person per day. Food is another basic supply that is severely limited. On November 9th, the World Food Programme's Director of Emergencies, Kion Nam Park, spoke with reporters. Before the um, October 7, 33% of the population were food insecure. We can safely say that 100% are food insecure at this moment. We would like to ensure the next six, uh, the next 90 days, we need $112 million to be able to reach 1.1 million people. The Israeli air campaign has, so far, killed thousands of civilians. But it has also laid waste to vast areas of Gaza, severely affecting the infrastructure of the besieged enclave. There were some UN figures some days ago around 222,000 residential units had been damaged and something like just over 40,000 residential units have been completely destroyed. You add that to the fact that hospitals are being hit, schools are being hit, bakeries, internally displaced people's shelters and and refugee camps are being hit. Um, Nothing is being spared, you know. So right now you're looking like something like 50% of all the housing units across Gaza have been hit and damaged. It's absolutely devastating. The attacks on infrastructure also create their own related health risks, which threaten the lives of Palestinians, even after the bombs have stopped falling. There There are multiple, multiple health risks. Obviously, we can talk about immediate traumatic injuries, and then there's the lack of healthcare associated with that. But then you have multiple impacts from the lack of healthcare for for trauma injuries, seriously and escalating mental health needs. In such a situation like Gaza now, you have an increase in diarrhea and respiratory illnesses uh, and other infectious diseases. If you can imagine that not enough medical aid is getting in, coupled with the fact that healthcare is massively under attack, well over 200 attacks on healthcare, since this latest escalation, according to the World Health Organization. So an increase in disease as well. And everything just compounds and compounds on top of that to create this massive, stressful mental health, physical health crisis that the people of Gaza uh, are experiencing right now. On November 21st, James Elder, a spokesperson for UNICEF, addressed reporters. If... Children's access to water and sanitation in Gaza continues to be restricted and insufficient. 
we will see a tragic yet entirely avoidable surge in the number of children dying. It's also important to note it's starting to rain in Gaza. Now combined, children face a serious threat of mass disease outbreak. By the time you hear this, a four-day ceasefire in Gaza would have started and with any luck is still holding. The exchange of hostages and prisoners will also likely be underway. But will the relief it brings change conditions in Gaza? It's not enough. Four days or five days of a pause is certainly not enough when you think about the the massive humanitarian needs that people in Gaza are suffering, but also the need to repair critical infrastructure, uh, hospitals, for instance, the water network, the electricity network, desalination plants, all of these elements of critical infrastructure that maintain the ability to live in Gaza have been destroyed or damaged. That takes longer than four or five days. You know, you need the certainty. Aid workers, engineers, people involved in logistics need the certainty of a longer time period to do effective planning, uh, assessments, early recovery, repair work. You need longer, and that's why, for instance, us at Amnesty International, we are calling for that full negotiated ceasefire by all parties. But the problem is there's this anxiety that the fighting will just continue in four or five days after that pause. And, you know, the Israeli authorities have been very clear in in saying quite publicly that we will continue with our mission to eliminate Hamas. It's a very vague mission. It's not very clear what it means, but if it's how they've been operating since the 7th of October, it's massive bombardments and attacks on the civilian population. It's collective punishment. It's war crimes and crimes against humanity. Following the horrors of the Hamas attack on October 7th, Israel declared its goal was to eliminate Hamas. Israel clearly demonstrated how it planned to go about this elimination very soon after October 7th. At the earliest opportunity, the US announced its full support for Israel and their mission. On October 7th, US President Joe Biden said this. In this moment of tragedy, I want to say to them and to the world and to terrorists everywhere, the United States stands with Israel. We will not ever fail to have her back. Complete US support was perhaps entirely predictable, unlike the initial Hamas attack, which has very much turned US Middle East policy on its head. I think that the administration would have very much preferred that this conflict didn't happen in the first place. This is Charles Dunn, adjunct professor at the Elliott School for International Studies at George Washington University and also non-resident scholar at the Arab Center, Washington, D.C. They felt themselves on track for a fairly smooth Middle East policy, which would involve disengaging from the Palestinian issue altogether by means of building up relations between the Arab states and Israel through the Abraham Accords. And that was the whole strategy, politically and militarily and even economically. The Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th really upset that whole plan. And the administration was left to improvise. The US has been looking for a way out of the Middle East for years. Not entirely out, but certainly a pivot to an arm's length posture. Enough of her presence to wield influence, 
but not stuck fighting intractable and costly wars. Just when they thought they were out, their allegiance to Israel has pulled them back in. And as they were pulled back in, they were, at least in the initial days after the Hamas attack, left floundering. The Biden administration was clearly surprised by the ferocity, uh, the extent and the success of the Hamas attack on October 7th. And I think they were equally surprised by the Israeli response, the extent to which Israel went into Gaza, and especially the extent to which Israel was, to be honest, fairly indiscriminate with its military engagement in heavily civilian areas. They shouldn't have been surprised, especially given uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's predilections and everything that he said about pursuing this conflict. But I believe they were, and they've been left a huge mess diplomatically for the United States to kind of confront and to try to manage. And in that, they have not been totally successful. I think think they are beginning to sort out the elements of a more detailed and helpful response to the whole thing. But I do believe that the scale and the ferocity of the conflict on both sides certainly left the Biden administration wondering what was going on and how exactly to respond. And when they did respond, it appears to have been misjudged. I think the biggest failing of the administration was to jump in with wholehearted support of Israel and its right to defend itself, which was not further differentiated, at least in the very beginnings of the Israeli response. And that left many to believe in the United States, as well as in the Arab world and the international community, that the United States was giving carte blanche to whatever Israel wanted to do in response. And that was a big diplomatic failing. And the United States has had to scramble to repair that damage um, uh, internationally. And of course, the Biden administration is also facing the fallout politically uh, here in the US. I think that was their, their biggest failing right there. The political fallout grew as the intensity of Israel's attacks grew and the number of killed Palestinians grew. The wholehearted support by the US for Israel was questioned very loudly on American streets and less loudly, but still firmly, in the corridors of Washington. This was one protester in Boston. I think it hurts. It's a little hypocritical what America is doing to the Palestinians every day. And as someone who lives here, knowing my tax money is going to like fund this apartheid, it's just so unfair and unjust. And I just have to go out and speak about this because if I'm going to sit here all day long and do nothing about it, the genocide is going to continue to happen and happen and it'll never stop. And I think the Biden administration was caught somewhat off guard by the reaction of the American public and specifically the Democrats who demonstrated in unprecedented numbers against the violence in in Gaza are demonstrating for ceasefires and particularly Muslim Americans in swing states such as Michigan have indicated in fairly significant numbers that their support for the Biden administration is hanging in the balance. And this is something that is not at all lost on the White House. And I believe that the level of 
discontent within the democratic portion of the elect of the electorate and in fact among you know americans in general has been a major factor in the biden administration kind of saying we support israel on the one hand but we also support humanitarian pauses and increase in humanitarian aid a political horizon after this gaza conflict is over I don't know what they're going to do with that, but they have a huge hill to climb politically in the U.S., especially among people who would be inclined to vote for Biden in the next election. Um, and, and this is, you know, factoring very heavily into, into their considerations on the policy decisions that they're making right now. A response on the street was probably anticipated in some fashion by the Biden administration, particularly in areas with a high Muslim density. Additionally, protests could be expected from progressive anti-Zionist Jewish Americans. Such an intense level of protests was probably not anticipated. And neither was the expanded level of questioning scrutiny that the US policy was subjected to in Washington, D.C. You know, in past conflicts, American public opinion has been very much in favor of Israel. And it's like taken as a given that the United States is going to back Israel to the hilt on any specific conflict with the Palestinians or any Arab state or combination of Arab states. And this has really been changing kind of under the radar for the last many years in the United States. And this is the first time we've really been seeing it playing out publicly in Congress and among the public. About two weeks ago, 26 Democratic senators Democrats and independents, I should say, they're two independents, uh, signed a letter to President Biden, not criticizing his policy, but saying very pointedly, what are you going to do to ensure that Israel is complying with the laws of war and what it's doing in Gaza? Uh, what are you going to do to ensure that U.S. aid and support is not going to aid and support humanitarian disasters in Gaza? And you wouldn't have seen that even a few years ago. And it was, to me, an indication of how far public opinion, as reflected in significant congressional opinion, has come. Over the past week, particularly as Israel laid siege to the Al-Shifa hospital, the US has tempered its use of supportive language in regards to Israel's military mission. This was President Biden on November 13th. Well, uh, you know, I uh, have not been reluctant in expressing my concerns what's going on. Um, and it's my hope and expectation that uh, there will be uh, less intrusive action relative to the hospital. Uh, we're in contact. And we're One day later, in response to a question asking whether Israel was abiding by the rules of war, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said that Israel was obliged to do everything in their power to protect civilian lives and that Israel had been privately reminded of this. But he qualified that by saying that he was not willing to judge whether Israel was doing everything in its power to protect civilian lives. It's the have your cake and conduct airstrikes option. While the Biden administration might have stepped unwisely when it gave Israel's mission such wholehearted support so quickly, it hasn't been a complete diplomatic calamity. What I think they've been successful in doing 
and this is a very limited success, but is in defining what they want to see come next. They've been fairly clear about humanitarian pauses. They've been clear about minimizing the damage to civilians in Gaza. They have also hinted at a political horizon, although in very, very indistinct terms, something that could come after in terms of a diplomatic solution to the overall conflict. But the Biden administration hasn't really committed itself to that at all. But they're beginning to think this through, which I think is, if not a success, possibly the beginnings of a success. What comes next, or perhaps more accurately, what won't come next, was laid out by US Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a speech in Tokyo, Japan, on November 8th. The United States believes key elements should include no forcible displacement of Palestinians uh, from Gaza. Not now not after the war. No use of Gaza as a platform for terrorism or other violent attacks. No reoccupation of Gaza after the conflict ends. No attempt to blockade or besiege Gaza. No reduction in the territory of Gaza. For better or worse, the US is firmly engaged in current diplomatic efforts. But as we mentioned earlier, the US has been feeling for the exit of the Middle East for years, Their main tool for this exit was via the Abraham Accords. Get as many countries in the region to normalise relations with Israel and then leave them to prosper, mainly economically, from the deal. In the weeks before October 7th, much of the diplomatic chatter of the region, and indeed on this very podcast, was about the potential for Saudi Arabia to join the Abraham Accords, normalising relations with Israel. So where does the conflict leave the Abraham Accords now? No, the United States has not given up on the Abraham Accords. I think the United States administration, the Biden administration, still believes it to be absolutely central to achieving a peaceful and stable Middle East. Certainly the whole progress of the Abraham Accords and expanding the circle of peace has been set back by the current events in Gaza. And a lot of Arab countries, including those who've already previous to the Abraham Accords have made peace with Israel, you know, are keeping their distance. But none of this changes the essential political calculus of all of the Arab regimes who are involved in this, which is that peace with Israel is good for us economically, it's good for us in security terms, and most important, it's good for us in terms of relations with the United States. The conflict in Gaza could represent a concession-squeezing opportunity for the likes of Saudi Arabia. Well, for example, Saudi Arabia has taken a leadership role in opposition to what's going on in Gaza, uh, calling for a ceasefire, inviting the Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, to a summit in Riyadh to condemn uh, the Israeli attacks in Gaza. They still have in mind that peace with Israel is going to benefit them in a very essential way, especially if they can, for example, get the United States to agree to help them with their civilian nuclear program, which is something the U.S. has been a little cagey about. They don't really want to do that. But under the circumstances, it might paradoxically make it more possible for the United States administration to agree to helping the the Saudis with this as a way of repairing, you know, the breach 
in interstate relations in, in the Middle East and get the U.S. Middle East policy back on track. So I think that is going to be a real consideration going forward. As it stands, the U.S. administration appears very unlikely to actively oppose Israel's objectives in Gaza. They may seek some humanitarian pauses, as we've seen this week, but they are not going to prevent Israel from going after Hamas in Gaza. They may speak out, however quietly, about Israel's tactics, but they will not, for example, refer Israel to the International Criminal Court, a decision several other countries have made. But as little as they may be doing during the conflict, there is an opportunity to do some good after the conflict. The most important thing the U.S. can do is simply say what it's going to support in the aftermath of this campaign. And you cited some of the things that Tony Blinken has said in terms of no reoccupation of Gaza and so on. The United States could put some real meat on the bones of that carcass by saying what we will support is an international peacekeeping force, for example, led by Arab states under the imprimatur of the UN. We will support a massive reconstruction program in Gaza focused first on humanitarian needs, such as the medical infrastructure, and then on housing, and then settling refugees who have had to move into the South back into their own reconstructed homes. I mean, there's a huge amount that the United States could say it would support and ask for congressional appropriations to do. It can also say it is going to launch a political initiative to explore opportunities for a final status settlement. And again, this is a huge political commitment that many U.S. administrations have made with, you know, one level of sincerity or another which the Biden administration has absolutely not wanted to do. But if it's really serious about moving this in a different direction and ending the violence altogether, it's going to have to do that. We don't know what route the Biden administration will take next. And we don't know on what points the Israeli government might be willing to negotiate. It's also worth remembering that by this time next year, the US will have voted in a presidential election and a whole new administration that's even more favourable to Israel could be gearing up for power. What is desperately needed is for the US to do something. What the United States can't do, in my opinion, is simply say that this is not possible. Israel won't agree to it. The Arabs won't accept this. The Palestinians will reject it. They have to start from a position of possibility and saying, this is what we support. This is reasonable. Let's hear everybody's ideas, but actually move forward with a real diplomatic commitment in order to bring this about. That doesn't mean it will succeed, right? But it does mean that it would be kind of a, you know, a, another new phase in U.S. diplomacy, which in my view is, is both overdue and completely necessary. For the people of Gaza, the war continues, day after day. Every effort must be given to help those affected and ease, if not end, the suffering. This means ceasefires, not pauses. The US is in a relatively unique position, being one of the few countries that Israel will actually listen to. Now is the opportunity 
for the Biden administration to step up, restore meaning to international law, restore some humanity to a brutal conflict, and perhaps also protect their electoral chances for the future. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter, which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.